Listener Production. Hi, 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 hi. Hello. Yes, hi. Oh, I see you over there. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to Come Out Wherever You Are. This is a safe space for curious people to learn more about the coming out experience. So, congratulations. You are now a part of this beautiful community. And because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it is only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zeps. I am a gay man who first came out in early 2000. I was 12 years old. And I came out inside of a closet to my friend, which is my favorite story. And I most recently came out, it would be four days ago in a playground when I was playing with my kids. Just one of the other mothers uh, brought up if I had a wife. And so I had to answer her right then and there. I had to come out of the closet yet again. Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family, David. David, thank you so much for coming. I'd love for you to just introduce yourself um, to the entire community and let us know when did you first come out? And if you can remember, when is a recent time where you were forced to come out? Well, my name's David Bradford. Um, I first came out in 1969 in London, which is a long time ago now. Yes, it is. (laughs) And um, I came out to a friend who was also a colleague, another doctor, And it was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do because I was then 26, going on 27, and I had never told anyone before. So um, I was a bit of a late comer outer, I guess you'd have to say. Wow. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I suppose the most recent I can remember was my partner and I were on a cruise. And, um, (laughs) you know, people sort of... um, on a cruise ship, they they gradually get to know you. And they, I was on my own. I was walking around the deck or something, and someone came up to me and said, um, "Look, forgive me asking, but is there something wrong with you and that man that you're always with? Um, don't you like women?" <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with us, and no. <laughs> no, and no. In fact, we're both gay men, and we're we're married, and we live together. Oh. and have done for 48 years. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. David Bradford is a retired sexual health physician, and his story is one that every single one of us needs to hear. We often talk about the HIV-AIDS epidemic on this podcast, but so far, we've never spoken to someone who was actually there on the front line. From 1980 to 1987, David was the director of the Melbourne Communicable Disease Center, which preceded the Melbourne Sexual Health Center. He was there when the first cases of HIV appeared in Melbourne in 1983. David opened his own clinic specializing in STIs and HIV AIDS in the late 1980s, and he spent 21 years as the Director of Sexual Health in Cairns. In his retirement, he has published two great books about his life called Gunner's Doctor and Tell Me I'm Okay. There is so much to David's story, I cannot wait you to hear it. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get right into it. We're going to take a big trip down memory lane back into the past. And oftentimes when I say that to guests on this show, that might be 10 years, 15, eight. 
the reason why it is so important and, and why I'm really just more excited than I've been in a very long time to speak to you is your experience of coming out was in a decade and a time in history where it absolutely was not as safe or as simple as it is now. And if we do not understand the great history of our community and what it has taken to get here, especially through the lens of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, which we're going to talk about on the show today, and how are we ever going to appreciate, you know, the struggle and the beautiful history of our community? So I'm just absolutely thrilled. But let's start way, way back. When were you born and where were you born? I was born in 1941 during the war. And I was born on the Blue Mountains in New South Wales in Katoomba. This is a silly question, but I always ask it, and I think it's important to answer it today. Was that an accepting place when you look back at that time through the lens of sexuality? Did you even know a single person who was, quote, different back then? No, definitely not. I mean, I must say, we left Katoomba and came to Sydney when I was seven. So um, my recollections of um, Katoomba are largely my early years at primary school. And it certainly wasn't the sort of school that you would have um, mentioned anything like that. Not that I think I was quite aware Mm. at age seven. Mm -hmm. Obviously, gay people and queer people at large didn't have a large footprint in the media landscape. And so in the 50s and 60s and 70s, not as much representation or maybe none at all. Do you have any early memories as a child, like into your teenage years, of ever seeing someone who accurately reflected how you felt inside? Was that ever an option for you? No, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. Wow. I suppose I had puzzling thoughts about why, as early as when I was about eight or nine, why I found a boy in a class a little older than me who was sort of good at all sports and everybody loved him. And he was a particularly handsome boy. And I can understand why I got quite excited if he ever deigned to speak to me. (laughs) Mm, Of course, I have that memory as well. (laughs) And at that time, was there even a label or a word for what that feeling was that you were able to grab onto? For, you know, oftentimes when you're having unique feelings, I imagine you felt like you were the only person in the world experiencing them. The world was very straight. It is still very straight. Did you even know that there was a word, like, I am this thing? Or was it just a feeling inside? Definitely not. Well, I I have to say that perhaps I was a little unusual in that I grew up in a very strict evangelical Christian home. And I doubt that my parents had actually heard the word homosexual, far less heard the word gay. Mm. Yes. I also grew up um, very religious. I was a member of the Roman Catholic Church. And by the 80s, Um, when I was growing up in the 90s, that word, specifically homosexual and gay, was a huge part of my religious upbringing, specifically through the lens of it being a big sin. But my next question, I think, is a good segue from that, which is the chicken or the egg of the religious gay kid. Do you learn you're gay first and then find out it's a sin, or do you learn that it's a sin and then realize you're gay? I think think it's the first. Mm. I think you... um, you find out that you're gay and then you discover that it's a sin. And that was certainly the case with me. We used to, of course, be encouraged to ha- have a, a daily Bible reading and yep. my father encouraged me to read through the entire New Testament. Mm. And I remember I was 12. I used to always get up early at 6 o'clock in the morning and read my Bible. 
And I remember the horror when I first read the first chapter of Romans, which talks about, um, you know, the sinfulness of men being attracted to other men and mm. using other men in the way you're supposed to use a woman. And, uh, and it, it struck me that this is talking about me. I mean, you know, and it, 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 was, it was quite terrifying. I think it's hard for people to understand who weren't raised religious what you mean when you say terrifying. Because for some people, it's very black and white. Those are just words in a book. And so if you don't agree with it, you can just walk away. Well, yes. But when you're, <laughs> when you're a child who is raised in this environment, that book is, is how the world works. It's every answer to every question you could ever have. And your mom believes it and your dad believes it and your cousins and your grandparents. Yeah. So if there's a sentence in there and it's saying you're a, a sinner, you're a bad person, that would instill an insane amount of fear inside of you, right? It definitely did. It definitely did. And in fact, that, that really colored my entire teenage years mm. growing up with, um, with that knowledge. And so it meant having to struggle really hard against, um, you know, desires towards other men. Yeah. Um, and it was very difficult. And there was no one I could talk to. I didn't feel I could broach it with my parents because, you know, they would think that that was a terrible thing that that I had to talk about it even. Mm. And I couldn't go to a pastor of the church. I didn't know. There was no one really I could talk to. That's so sad, especially because I imagine the definition of a man and what it means to be a man is, has changed over the course of your lifetime and my lifetime I would argue it's getting better, but I think in some places in the world, people would argue it's not. But I imagine in the 50s and 60s, there's a very specific ideal man and what that means. Did you find yourself trying to pretend? Lie? Yes. Yes, I did. But I was not very successful. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was a very manly sort of man, and he was, had been a very good athlete, a great runner. And... Uh, he, he encouraged me tremendously to take part in sports. So, you know, Christmas and birthday presents were always things like a cricket bat or a football. He even um, bought me a, a, a box, uh, you know, a, a punching bag once that we carefully affixed to the, to the clothesline <laughs> in the back garden. And he really strove hard to teach me, you know, to participate in sports. But I was just hopeless at it, and I had no interest in it. So my, my efforts, I used to say that the only thing, looking back, the only thing manly about me was the school that I went to is Manly Boys High School. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So you start to know you're this thing. Did you say around the age 12, or was it earlier yeah, than that? Well, I, I, a bit earlier I had feelings, but I guess it was around the age of 12 that it really struck me that this was how I was. Mm. You know, I liked girls and I liked talking to girls, but they never attracted me in any way. So physically. Mm. And what came first? Experiencing the affection of another man or telling someone that you were having these feelings? Oh, the, the thing that came first was telling someone I was having these feelings because I didn't really even have any close male friendships, I don't think. And it was really when I uh, finished university and joined the army that... Um, I had to kind of confront this. Why did you choose to go into the army? Well, um, when I finished medical school, mm. I went as a doctor 
as an intern at Concord Repat Hospital in Sydney, and I was there for two years. And at that time, the Vietnam War was just hotting up, and there were quite a number of um, consultants and indeed registrars at the hospital where I was working who had had army experience or served in the in the forces. And uh, a couple of people said to me, well, look, if you want to get good experience in surgery, because I, at that time I thought I wanted to be a surgeon, they said, why don't you join the army and go to Vietnam? Because you'll get tremendous experience there. Mm. And so that's what led me to join the army. And it also, it was a chance to get away from home. You know, I knew that I, I really liked men and I really liked their company, the company of young men I really enjoyed. I'd had to look after a few soldiers at Concord Hospital who'd been injured, and some of them indeed were medivacs from the Vietnam War. And I enjoyed looking after them. I enjoyed chatting to them. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I can kind of sublimate my gay feelings without doing anything by becoming a doctor for the army. And that's what led me to enlist, I guess. Wow. Fascinating to hear that, like the... the uh how we as humans, when our back is against the wall, specifically when we're outliers or different or diverse, how we yeah. bob and weave around to try to make our truth fit into a, into a puzzle that already exists that we're like, okay, I've heard that before only one other time. And it was in an interview with a priest who said, I knew I was this type of person and I couldn't act on it. So I wanted to put myself in a career where I had the ability to connect, not physically, but emotionally, with other people, and that will be my calling, or a teacher, indeed. or a doctor. So I completely understand what you're saying here. Yeah, indeed. And um, having got to Nui Dat, well, I should say that my my dreams of becoming a surgeon, getting surgical experience in the army, were soon dashed when the brigadier said to me before we left for Vietnam, he said, "David, um, we really need young doctors to go and join the fighting units." not to go to the hospital. So we're sending our older doctors to the hospital and you young ones are going to the infantry or the artillery. And I wow. was sent to the artillery. I became the, the doctor for the gunners. And I had a year being GP for the artillery regiment. And people said to me, what was Nui Dat like? Well, I had to say in later years, it was actually paradise for a gay man. Why? There were all these hunky young men everywhere. <laughs> there you go, yeah. With, uh, with floppy army shorts on and nothing much else. And, you know, I had to confront my sexuality. I had to think, you know, this, this sublimation business is not going to work in the long run. No. It, it's got to work while I'm in the army because you can't go doing anything in the army and certainly not if you're the doctor and <laughs> everybody else is one of your patients. But... You know, in the long term, this is not a solution. No. I mean, it sounds like paradise in a funny way, like a, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. from one gay man to another who's happily married, both of us. But I'm imagining that it actually wasn't that nice because the suppression of your truth must have been like stepping, I mean, quite literally, like over minefields. Right? It, was. You... it was. It was indeed. It was indeed. And that presented real problems. And of course, it wasn't a nice atmosphere in the sense that you know, there was always a, a hint of danger. Mm. You never knew if the task force base was not going to be mortared at night. And there were several scares when we thought it was going to be. Yep. Um, so it was, an, it, you know, it, I, I'm only really kind of 
being a little facetious when sure. saying it was paradise. But yeah. he, I mean, as far as eye candy was concerned, it was paradise. There you go. <laughs> now, when we look back at Australian army history, um, there were times where they were actively pursuing gay and lesbian soldiers or employees of the government and attempting at all costs to out them and drag them out of the army. Was that something happening at the time where you were there? Was there any discussion at all about fraternization amongst men? There was, there was a, 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 a sergeant major in my unit who was widely rumored to be gay. Okay. And on a couple of, I remember one occasion particularly when the duty sergeant, who happened to be one of my team, he was a hygiene sergeant who was on duty for a particular evening, came to me in a kind of, in, in anger really, and saying, that sergeant major, he's got a guy from the American base down the road in the tent with him and they're having sex, you can hear them. And he said, I'm the duty sergeant, I'm going to have to bust them, I said. Mate, I said, if you go doing that, he's your boss. Yeah. He's the regimental sergeant major. You can't go and doing that. And and my my reasons for saying that were twofold. One was, well, good luck for to the poor old bugger. You know, if he's <laughs> he's doing that, at least it's not with an Australian. <laughs> 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 and you know, and and also my concern was for mine hygiene sergeant, because he would have had a very hard time if he'd actually blown the whistle on him. Do you know what would have happened back then? Would it have been as simple as just being removed or would it have been worse than that? Oh, well, uh, you know, I suppose in a war zone and, and with a, somebody relatively senior, um, some sort of compromise would have had to be reached, I guess. But, mm. um, but you know, we well know that up to 1992, um, if you were found to be homosexual or lesbian in the army, um, you were kicked out. I mean, they had, you know, they had military police following people sometimes to check on their movements outside of duty hours back home in Australia. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's useful information because it helps people listening kind of paint a picture of what it would have been like to be you at that time. It, the heightened level of stress that's happening physically around you, literally in a war zone, but then also internally if I am outed, this is how people will feel. This is how other people feel about other yes. people who might be gay. We don't even have proof yet, just might. Yes. I mean, I, I think I, if, if I had been outed, I would definitely have been sent home. I think, you know, medical officers, they would have regarded that as not only being against good military discipline, but, you know, a person in a position of trust as a doctor. Mm. They wouldn't have been able to accept that in the army. I would have been sent home with a dishonorable discharge, I'm yeah. quite sure. I don't mean this to sound offensive, but I'm asking actually purely intellectually. Oftentimes, younger people who can't wrap their head around why queer people put themselves in difficult situations throughout history are probably wondering, well, then why would you work in the army? Why would you want to work at a place that would be scary or dangerous for queer people? Why not leave and try to find a job? It's even hard for me to say it out loud, but like in the arts. And I'm just wondering what you would say to that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's limited jobs for doctors in the arts. <laughs> mm, you're right. Good answer. Did you really, really want to be a doctor? Was that important to you, like in your heart and soul? No, I didn't want to be a doctor at all. My dad 
always wanted me to be a doctor. Okay. Uh, the, the story in the family was that he'd reached the time for tertiary education during the Depression. Got it. And his dad wasn't able to put him through medicine, but he did have enough um, resources to put him through pharmacy. So he did pharmacy instead, and he'd always wished he'd been a doctor. So I was always going to be a doctor from the time I was born. And the fact that I actually wanted to become a classics teacher, um, that didn't go down too well with the family, and we had uh, quite a heated argument over it uh, when I was in final year high school. Okay. So at what time in your life did you finally get the opportunity to experience um, being gay, and was it solidified that this is 100% my truth? At what point in your life did that happen? When I left the Army, I stayed on in the Army for another eight months after I got back from Vietnam. Yep. And when I left the Army, I decided I would go to England and study surgery. That's what I wanted to do. And so I went off to, to London. And the first few months in London were very, very hard. Um, I'd finished with the army and I felt kind of bereft. Mm. I'd been the doctor for 800 or so young men. Suddenly I, I wasn't anything. I was just, you know, a guy, a medical student again in London studying basic medical sciences for the first part of my surgical degree. Wow. And so getting back to study was hard. Being in London, it was winter, it was dreary and mm. cold, and I was away from the family, and I, I didn't really have anyone I knew there. I didn't have any supports. And uh, my homosexual tendencies uh, and desires kind of broke all barriers. Um, and I decided I must do something about this because I, I was a doctor. I knew that what this wasn't going to change. Yeah. I wasn't going to suddenly become a heterosexual. So I, I knew that this, this chap who'd been a registrar, he was a psychiatric registrar at Concord Hospital who'd always been pleasant to chat to. I knew he lived in London and I had his phone number. I rang him up. Well, at last I rang him up. I tried about 10 times, you know, ringing the phone and putting it down. Hanging up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but finally I spoke to him and, and he invited me around for coffee and I told him and it was very difficult, but that's, and from that time I decided, you know, I'm going to live as a gay man. Wow. You know, too bad about my religion, too bad about my family. This is what I have to do for me. Were you really afraid to tell him? Uh, well, look, I, I kind of sensed that his reaction would be good, which indeed it was. But, uh, you know, actually saying the words, it kind of is very difficult to, even if you've been thinking about it for the last, you know, 15 years or so, it's still very difficult to actually get it out. And, yeah. Well, yeah. oftentimes I hear people say the moment you speak it for the first time is the moment you're confirming it to yourself. You might, it's yes. a fantasy in your head, a theory. Prior exactly. to the moment you speak it, the moment exactly. you say it, can't take it back. Exactly. And how did he respond? You said positively, but I'm very interested at that time how someone would have responded. Right. He was very positive. Uh, he, uh, well, I'll tell you what. I actually said to him, you know, eventually when I got it out, I said, um, Frank, I think I might be homosexual. And he said, David, you're a doctor. You either think or do you know? And I said, yeah, well, I know I'm homosexual. Oh, wow. So, so then he wanted to know, you know, have you ever done anything about it? Um, and I had to say no. And, you know, 
you know, I often, he said to me, I often wondered why you went and joined the army. It seemed most unlike you. You know, why on earth did you do it? And I said, I did it because I'm gay. And then we talked about the religious stuff. And, and he said, look, it, it just happens. I've read a little pamphlet or a little booklet just recently that might be helpful. He said, I'll see if I can find it. And it was a book written by a, a, a guy from King's College, Cambridge, who was a Christian um, a kind of lecturer there. And um, he had written this book and it was called Time for Consent. And it was a, 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 a little booklet urging the church to change its tune and to accept uh, gay people and to, to realise that, you know, they, they had a valid part to play. And um, it was quite transforming reading it, really. And so Frank did me a great service by giving me that. And I then, I actually wrote to this guy at Cambridge and, uh, and he wrote back and said, I'll come and have a chat. So, wow, this is great. So, so I went and had a chat to him and he was a funny sort of fella. I mean, I expected to see some quite dignified kind of, you know, clerical man. And when I arrived at King's College, I found this old guy sitting waiting for me in the, in the you know, the front porters area. And he was sitting on an upturned sort of pale thing. And he was, he was a round, you know, florid faced guy with whitish hair smoking a cigarette. I thought, this doesn't look like mate, your average um, Sydney clergyman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not in Kansas anymore. And there, yes. And then he took me to the senior fellow's common room and he kind of boomed out, oh, so you're having a few problems with your sexuality, are you? <laughs> you're like, Snape, quiet, please. I don't need this to be out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Anyway, we, get, we ended up getting on very well and, and we stayed in touch, in fact, until he died. Oh, wow. Amazing. And he was a, he was a great help. Mm. So I'm interested in kind of unpacking this. And this is me projecting onto you. But when you're a religious person growing up as a child, a lot of your blind faith, uh, pun intended, is like whatever's in the book. And then oftentimes you hear of people becoming a doctor or scientist and they start to live in a world of fact and proof and yeah. reason. And that challenges faith. Is the reason that you're searching for these answers or interested in the book, other than the fact that your friend has given it to you, is that was religion and God still important to you? Was it important to understand where you fit in as a gay person? Yes, okay. yes. Uh, and, you know, it's been quite a long journey because I've now reached the, the, the conclusion that all of what I was taught and what I believed is, is you know, not, not true and not right. Mm. I've had to face up to the fact that, you know, as a doctor, the facts are not in support of, of religion. That's true. But that took me a long time to come to. And, and, and I have to say that people like Norman Pittenger, this guy who wrote that, that book, um, you know, was a great help along the way um, because it wouldn't have been possible for me to have just thrown everything overboard at that stage of my life. Of course. So I needed I needed a kind of way of being able to um, balance, you know, what I was feeling and mm. um, and what I was believing. And if you needed answers at some point in the future to be able to ever, ever, ever talk to your family about it or anyone back at home, it would be important research to figure out if there might be an answer. Exactly. Yes. At that time, a lot 
more difficult to find other people like you, not just in Australia, not just in London, much more of an underground scene, really all the way up until the 80s or or 70s. How did you start to find people like you in London or maybe when you came back? Well, again, um, Frank was a big help because he knew several people, um, particularly colleagues. And the funny thing was, um, one of the people he put me in touch with was someone who turned out to have been in my year at medical school. Oh, wow. And neither of us had suspected that we were, you know, same-sex attracted. And and he invited me to a party. And and it it was a very, very gay party. And most of the people there were doctors. Uh, with their partners and, uh, you know, it, and they were all round about my age. And I, was, uh, of course, be, being a, you know, a, a, having been brought up in an evangelical Christian home, parties weren't big on, you know, going to parties were not big. Yeah, no drinking, um, no swearing. No, no swearing, no drinking, no smoking, no, you know, none mm. of those things. And so, you know, here I was suddenly at a gay party, not just a party, but a gay party. <laughs> did that feel nice? It felt fabulous. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I got chills. It did. <laughs> and was that basically the beginning of the end, the beginning of finding people like you, the beginning it was. of connecting? It was. Amazing. It, was. Mm. it so was. Tell me about if you ever got the chance to talk to anyone in your family about your truth. Did that ever happen for you? Well, I decided that I'd have to tell someone in the family. And the person who I think I was um, closest to was my young brother. I've got one brother and one sister. Mm. And uh, my brother is the youngest. I'm the eldest and my brother's the youngest. And I thought he was doing psychology at um, University of New South Wales at the time. And I thought, I'll write to him and tell him. And I wrote and told him. and, And he was very... He wrote back a very positive response and he'd just become engaged and he, t- he asked me, could he tell his fiancée, which he did, and, and they've both been tremendous supports over the years. Wow. Even though he became a, he ended up becoming a, an Anglican uh, minister in Sydney. So. Wow. Were you nervous about that letter coming back? I know. Oh, you- sure. Okay. Yes, tremendously, tremendously. And I also wrote to my best friend. Um, at university, who was also a staunch evangelical, he wrote back to say he'd just decided he'd <laughs> he's an all or nothing sort of person, this guy. And um, there'd been a Billy Graham crusade in Sydney at yeah. the time. And he um, he was an advisor, not just a counsellor, but an advisor at the Billy Graham crusade. And he said he was at one of these meetings and he was listening to Billy Graham carrying on and he thought, None of this makes sense. Mm. And he decided there and then that he was giving it all up. And so pulling his advisor's badge off in a dramatic fashion, he stormed out of the Sydney showground. Wow. Is that because of the letter? Like he was able to see for the first time someone? Oh, okay. No, my letter happened to arrive the week after he'd done this. It's good (laughs) timing. And he wrote back to tell me. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So tell me about your mother discovering a box. I came home after I'd been in England for, let me see, four years. Mm -hmm. I just passed my surgical exam. What year is it? The end of 1972. Okay. 
Early 70s, got it, sorry. Yeah, the end of 1972. And I came home uh, for a six-week holiday in Sydney. And uh, the week before I went back, I met my future partner on Manly Walk. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I was supposed to be going, it was a Sunday evening, I was supposed to be going to church to meet my brother. Mm and his fiancée. And instead I met this man. We were both at a milk bar. And he said, I've been looking at you uh, walking up and down because I'd been walking up as early and I'd been walking up the old pontoon on the end of Manly Pool. And he said, I was watching who you were watching, he said. I reckon you're gay. And this, this is at the milk bar. Wow. And, um, well, it was something like that, you know, but yeah. that's, that's how he twigged anyway. And, and so we went and sat on the edge of Manly Pool and talked and talked and the church bell rang and I ignored it. <laughs> of course, you're not going to leave this great opportunity. He's been direct. There's good chemistry. <laughs> and we went back, we went back to where he was staying in Sydney and I got home very late to Pennant Hills on the very last train on the Sunday night and my mum and dad were waking up. <laughs> For me, oh, of course, and, and it was it was very difficult. But anyway, I didn't tell them that evening. But mm. during the course of the last week, he was up on work from Melbourne, and he'd had to go back to Melbourne, and he kept ringing up. And you know, there was only one phone. We none of us had mobiles or things sure, in those exactly. days. So just one phone in the hallway in our family home, and he kept ringing up. And my mother said to me, she was ironing my shirts on the Thursday evening before I went back to London, I think, on the Sunday. And she was said to me, we've got to have a talk. She said, who is this man who's ringing you from Melbourne? And she said, I, I think, and she said, I think you might be a homosexual. She did. So she actually told me. What did you say? And I said, well, yes, that's true, I am. And I've just met this man who I think is wonderful and that's why he's been ringing me up. And uh, she burst into tears and then, you know, oh. told me it was a sin. And and then I had to, in the next few days, I had to leave. So it was very, very difficult. And she said, don't tell your father. Whatever you do, don't tell your father. It'll kill him. Wow. So If I had a dollar, honestly, every time I hear that exact, exact sentence, don't yes. tell your father, it will kill him. Like yes, this yes. concept that we want to protect other people from truth. Like, yes. Yes, we don't ever get give other people an opportunity to understand the truth and work through it and learn to accept or love. We just exactly. want to protect them. It's devastating. Yes, terrible. And I just want to like hold space for this because I know over. I'm sure over your lifetime you've been able to kind of look back at that. In the moment, were you upset with her, or did you understand? Oh, I was upset with her reaction, but I understood it because I guess it, what I had always thought would happen, mm. and in fact. But for meeting Michael, I think I would not have told him then. I may have left it for quite a long time. Sure, especially if you were going to go live in London or not live exactly. there. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I do think it's hard for younger people who listen to this show to understand that a life of secrecy or what we would think of as lying now was, didn't mean the same thing in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That was just life for gay people. It just was. Yeah, she said before, 
you know, that it was kind of underground. And mm. um, even though the law had changed in England and it was perfectly legal for two men to have sex together if they were over 21 at that time, um, it was still, you know, it was still clandestine. Sure. And, for example, I'm coming out to work colleagues. I, I, by that time, I was working in London in, in a hospital. And the first time I actually came out in the hospital was when Michael came over to live with me. And I was invited to the ward Christmas party of the orthopedic ward I was working on. Mm. And they said, bring anyone you like, you know. So I thought, I'll take Michael. Yeah. So, so I took him and I introduced him as my partner. Well, a couple of, couple of mouths dropped. I'm sure. <laughs> Open. <laughs> that would have been the first time they had even met a couple that was willing to address that they were a couple, I'm I sure. I think so. I think so. It was pretty unusual. Yeah. Mm. Did you ever get an opportunity to address this in a more positive way with your family or was that really the end of that conversation? Oh, no. It, uh, I, I, I ended up writing to my dad because I thought, you know, I can't go. There were terrible hysterical letters coming from my mum and it was obvious she was struggling, you know, because she didn't have anyone to share it with. Mm. I told her I told my brother and so she could share it with him, but I wrote to my dad and told him. So, And he wrote a nice letter back, but, um, you know, just reiterating the fact that I was um, now living in sin and that there was no way either of them could condone it. Wow. And for years it went on a bit like that. So all of this is happening with your family. It's obviously hard to hear, and I imagine more consistent of a story back then. But were you getting to experience a happy life with Michael in London? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it was difficult. We'd only known each other for a little less than a week when I went back to England. Mm. And we then corresponded regularly by letter, by, you know, those little blue aerograms and yes. postcards and all that. And, and even tapes. We, we both bought little tape recorders and made tapes to each other. Wow. And, um, and eventually in August he decided to come over. And from the time he arrived, we lived together. And we've lived together ever since. Now, you know, we had to get to know each other. It was, it, it was a kind of steep learning curve for both of us. Mm. I mean, he was, he, he was away from his family and his friends and his, his usual circle. And I was in this process of, you know, gradually developing friends in London. And, and so, it, it, and we bought a house together and, uh, you know, it was quite, it was all quite difficult, really, yeah. working out our finances and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, there weren't that many established gay couples then that uh, were like role models. You had to kind of trailblaze a bit. Mm. But the answer is yes, it was happy. So oftentimes on this show, we talk about HIV and AIDS, the epidemic, but we talk about it from afar. In fact, over the course of the monkeypox conversation happening in Australia and globally right now, I've noticed that very rarely do they bring people forward who actually had experience working on the ground with HIV and AIDS patients. And it's yeah. frustrated me because I'm like watching a 29-year-old on the TV talk about what we learned through that time. And I'm like, well, 
those there are people who are alive still that can bring it up. And so when I discovered you and when we started when I started reading about you, I thought this is a rare and beautiful opportunity to, to speak to someone who actually was literally physically there. You are not only a, a gay person at the time, but you are also a serious professional working and have worked um, as a doctor. Talk to me about the first time you heard about AIDS or HIV. Okay. That was in 1991. Mm. I, I'd come back from England in 1980. I should say I'd given up being a surgeon. Okay. I didn't think it was my, you know, my calling. And I'd become interested in sexually transmitted infections in the army because that's a big part of what I was doing. And, uh, and so I decided I'd specialise in sexual health. And I did the last few years in, in London. And I got a, a diploma in venereology, which was really the only thing that you could get to specialise in those days in, in sexual health. Mm. And I came back to Australia and I got a job at the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, which was then called the Melbourne Communicable Diseases Centre in Little Lonsdale Street. And after a few months working there, the old director retired and I became the new director. And so I was responsible for a clinic that needed to be dragged out of the dark ages into um, something akin to the clinics that I'd worked in in England. Mm. And it really was, when I say the dark ages, the approach to patients with sexually transmitted infections back in 1980 in Melbourne was pretty poor. And there was a lot of work to do. But And that was a great challenge and I enjoyed it immensely. And I, I was kind of imbued with great eagerness and you know, determination to make a difference. and Wow. And if only you knew what was about to happen. Well, exactly. Oh. And then I got this, this little um, photocopied report of the MMWR from the United States, which detailed June 1981, which detailed this new gay-related immune deficiency mm. of men with um, Kaposi sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia in San Francisco and New York. And I remember the, the guy who'd sent it down from head office in the health department in Melbourne had written, don't know how important this might be, but thought you ought to read it. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's America. But I thought, you know, it's probably something we need to watch. Mm. And, of course, then increasingly there were um, newspaper reports about it. There were medical journal articles about it. Although nothing had been seen in Australia at that stage, I remember in 1983 there was um, great concern in the gay community. By then I was quite a part of the gay community because one of the things that was particularly bad about the Melbourne Clinic was that it had very poor relationships with gay men. Okay. And I thought it was very important, not just because I was gay, but because from the point of view of the public health, for us to establish good contacts with the gay community, and I set about doing that. So in 83? In 83, there was big concern, okay. and a public meeting was called that was held in the dental hospital in, in, uh, at the Royal Melbourne Dental Hospital in their auditorium, and, and there, it was packed. I mean, there was, it, I, don't, I can't remember how many it, it actually seated, but there were people sort of standing at the back and sitting down the aisles, and, and there were about five of us doctors on stage, um, 
several doctors who had gay-friendly practices in Melbourne and myself as the director of the clinic and um, a doctor from the Royal Melbourne, who uh, Dr Ian Fraser, who became Professor Fraser, who developed the HPV vaccine. Yes. So um, we were all sitting on the stage and people were asking us questions about, about it and we were giving what we knew, which was precious little at that stage. Yes. Two questions. Were people afraid in the audience? And second question, were you afraid? Were people afraid? They were very afraid. And people were asking questions. How can I not get it? Mm. Um, and the only, you know, the only logical answer we could, we could say was, number one, don't have sex and you won't get it. Or number two, if you have a regular partner, stick to your regular partner and don't have sex with anyone else. Wow. Number three, don't have sex with an American. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and number four, we hadn't got round to knowing that, um, that using condoms could be protective at that stage in June 1983. It wasn't for about another six months until clear evidence that condoms were effective was coming through from San Francisco. Wow. Oftentimes when you look back to the history books, you uh, can see that people who were in committed relationships or relationships at all tend to be the people who survived. Indeed. Were you still nervous? I mean, you're a doctor, so you have a, a, a... Reading all of those initial press releases that made their way around the globe, it was very difficult for the average person to understand what any of it meant. But you are not only a trained doctor, but you also are the director of a clinic who specializes in disease. And so yes. I imagine, were you maybe a little bit less nervous and more focused on just making sure people understood it? I was nervous both for the community because I recognized it was going to be predominantly a problem in gay men. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was actually a little scared for myself. Okay. Because Michael and I had come back to Australia through America. And we had a relatively open relationship then. And we did have sex with other people because, you know, going through America. I mean, we went through New York and we went through San Francisco. and. Sure. We went to some parties and so on. And, and you know, I, we were both a bit concerned about our own status. Of course. And there was no test then. We were both healthy as far as we could tell. But, you know, that was a bit of a concern. And, you know, the, the other thing was we weren't sure what caused it. That mm. was in middle of 1983. We didn't know then that it was due to a virus. Although... I suppose um, most of us who were who'd specialised in STDs it, were pretty sure it was going to be a sexually transmitted virus. Having now lived through the early education around how the world experts believe we should um, mitigate the risk of monkeypox, I now know what it is like to be told to stop having sex if you can. I'm interested at that time in history where our community was very open and having a lot of fun and there were labels yeah. thrust upon us about being promiscuous. And the reality was, it was. We, we, the, the, the rumors were true, like especially in New York City and San Francisco where there was a lot of fun and a bigger group of people, more underground parties, the dick docs, like it, that existed and allowed us to explore. Do you remember when that information was being put out, how people responded? Did that seem crazy? Like, well, that's impossible. So what's the other advice? Yes, yes. I mean, of course we got, we, we certainly got those comments. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you know, we're gay men. We're, 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 the, the very fact that we're gay men means that 
you know, we, we, we don't have to be committed to a regular relationship. We don't have to get married to another man. We, we don't have to ape the heterosexuals. You know, it's part of gay liberation to have free sex. So there was there was a lot of that, uh, you know, bite back. Did you feel that when the information came out that at large there was an instant stigmatization against homosexuals? I know it wasn't easy to be gay back then, but as soon as that information came out, did you see a shift in the way the media talked about gay people or even friends or family? Like, I'm interested in that pivot because you were working in the space, communicating the information, but I don't know that you knew how it was going to shape people's perspective of us in like a blink of an eye. Oh, I, I think it increased the stigma. There's no doubt about that because it was seen as a gay disease. Mm. It only confirmed in the public mind that gay men were depraved and it confirmed in the, you know, the fundamentalist Christian mind that um, depravity led to death and that this was a God's judgment on homosexual men. Wow. So there was a lot of that, yes. But, I mean, the good news, I think, was that when we knew that condoms were protective, Mm -hmm. we didn't have to keep fighting that and pushing that message that you could only limit yourself to one regular partner. And we could say, look, we know that condoms work. If you use condoms with water-soluble lube, we know that it works and it's protective. If you use them every time, you won't get HIV. And we were gradually more and more confident to be able to say that. And we took that message everywhere. And when there was talk about closing down saunas and bathhouses, like had been done in America, we were able to argue strongly against that and say these are places where gay men congregate. They don't have to hide. They can come and they can be themselves in that space and we can educate them there. And indeed we did. I mean, the the proprietors welcomed us and welcomed any information we could provide. And, Mm. And that combined with the fact that we were lucky we had a sympathetic government with a splendid health minister, um, I think that made an enormous difference in Australia to the epidemic. I mean, the if there is a positive kind of twist on this story, other than the amazing education, which has made further epidemics and pandemics uh, a lot easier for us to communicate, specifically with our community, monkeypox is a good example. I just think it's powerful that you were in the right place at the right time to be able to specialize in STIs and HIV and AIDS. And then that carried for the rest of your career. Isn't that right? Like, didn't you end up just forever working and educating and continuing to be a voice of communication? So Yes. I actually got out of the health department and I went into private practice at the end of 1986 because I thought, you know, we're going to need all the doctors we sympathetic you know, gay-friendly doctors we can get to look after people because we really had, we we could treat people's opportunistic infections, but we couldn't treat their HIV, not until 1996. And so for that, you know, decade or more, Mm. there was no available treatment. And all that doctors could do was be supportive and be, um, be aware of the early symptoms of opportunistic infections that we could treat. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's why I went into private practice and I worked in that in Melbourne until 1993 when really the, the toll was getting too great. And I, I got out and went and worked in 
got a job in Cairns and went and did the same work in Cairns, but with less of a of a patient load. Yeah. Well, we're very lucky that you were there. Very lucky that you could help the way you could. I'm interested, final question, because our community is experiencing monkeypox and for young people, this feels catastrophic to their life and maybe they haven't spent a lot of time thinking about our past and what we've learned. There's this interesting debate occurring amongst health officials, primarily in the United States right now. It's like looking into your history books. It's happening in San Francisco and New York City where there's this debate around whether or not you communicate directly with gay people with a message that is clear that says this is a disease impacting your community and therefore you should abstain from having sex. And then there's this other strain, which is usually including people like you who have actual experience on the ground working with HIV and AIDS patients that say, actually, we know abstinent messaging does not work. It never has. It hasn't worked for any STIs. And this is a disease that we can communicate broadly because you don't have to be gay to get it. You just, I mean. That's true. And so I'm interested in like, if you could speak to a health official, maybe a director of Melbourne Disease Center, uh, now what you would say to them, like what would be good advice because you of all people would know? Well, I think we do know that there's a vaccine available against monkeypox. And it seems to me that you're quite right. I don't think telling people to abstain from sex is is ever going to work. It's, it's never worked for anything. So why would it suddenly start working now? So yeah. that that's out, I think. I don't know enough about how monkeypox is transmitted, but what I've read is that it, it's transmitted by close, intimate contact. Yes. And it can also be um, spread by airborne means. And so it's not just going to be confined to the gay community, but I think it is going to be, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I seem to think it's the case, that it's going to be mostly impacting on on the gay community. And therefore, I think you've got to have specific messages for them. And I think you have to prioritise them at the moment in receiving the effective vaccine, in which I think there are limited supplies of. And I think that's the major problem at the moment. Yeah. It's been really wonderful to hear your story. I'm interested in, as you have kind of had to revisit this, not just in writing books, but speaking to people, are you excited about the direction of the queer community? Do you feel like the world is a better place now than it was back then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you've got to look at it from a young person's point of view, I think. You've got to look at it from young, you know, from the earliest age of people growing up. I mean, the fact is that diversity is a fact of life. Sexual diversity is a fact of life. It always has been. It's never been any different. And the fact that for generations, we swept it under the carpet and kept it quiet and mm. tried to cover up about it. I think is the fact that that is largely gone, except in certain sections of the community, I think that's got to be a good thing. And to think that, you know, someone who's growing up on their seven and they realise there's something a bit different about it and whether they attracted to the same sex or whether they think they're in the wrong body and that they need to be opposite to what they are, mm. I think the fact that, you know, they they don't have to keep quiet about it. They don't have to shut up about it. They can find out where they can get, you know, support and help. I think that's, that's tremendous. It's, it's one of the major advances. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much. Your story was fantastic. If people want to hear more of your story, you have written multiple books. What are their names? 
I wrote a book called The Gunner's Doctor, which is uh, my letters home from Vietnam. It's largely out of print now. Um, but the other book I've written more recently is Tell Me I'm Okay, which is more or less the story of my life as a doctor and my early life in coming out. And it also talks about the, the HIV epidemic and it gives uh, some individual case studies that illustrate the difficulties that some of my patients went through and, you know, how many of them lost their lives ultimately. But you know, the, kind of, the kind of brave way in which they, they accepted their illness and fought hard to live. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Right. Thank you for coming. Thank you for talking and uh, have a fantastic rest of your week. Thank you very much, Sean. Cheers. Mm. Good. Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus 18youth and their website is minus18.org.au. But Minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps. Our lovely producer is... Lindsay Green. Our executive producer is... Lemma Zaharia. And we can't forget our audio producer... Chris Marsh. See you soon.